So as you're finding John 7, we'll go back to the 1980s. In the 1980s, milk sales were down in the United States of America. Sodas and sports drinks and other sugary beverages ruled the day. So in 1993, the California Milk Processing Board decided to do something about these poor milk sales. They hired Goodby Silverstein Marketing Firm to develop an ad campaign for milk. Milk, advertising milk. Now, the founders of this marketing firm said they initially wanted to run in the other direction. They said, milk is the most boring product in the world. Everybody knows about milk and they know as much as they wanna know about milk. But they decided to take the job anyway and so they held focus groups and one day the light bulb went off for the marketing firm and it went off when someone said, you know the only time I ever notice milk is when I run out of it. And thus began the Got Milk advertising campaign. The the underlying message of this ad is that you take milk for granted, but you always need it. You know, the name of Jesus has become as familiar to us as milk. So familiar to us that we are bored with him. We think we know everything there is to know about him. And this causes us to forget just how essential Jesus is. It causes us to take Jesus for granted and forget how much we need him. So today, let's jog our memories. Or maybe for you, let us introduce you to the true Jesus for the first time. The one who is the giver of life. The one who we thirst for, but might not know it. We'll read of this in John 7, 37 to 52. I invite you to follow along as I read. After I'm done reading, I'll say this is God's word. If you agree, would you say, thanks be to God. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? It comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. We can summarize the message of this section like this. Just ask, are you empty and weighed down? 
Come to Jesus and rest in the never-ending supply of life that he provides. Jesus is the one who was foretold, foretold to satisfy the thirst we should all feel. Now, as you look at this section of scripture, it's broken down into three paragraphs and different characters dominate each paragraph. And that's roughly how we're going to organize our time, focusing on the, the dominant character in each paragraph. So that's Jesus, then that's the people, then that's the authorities. So first up, the character, Jesus, verses 37 to 39. Like in most sermons, we're going to spend our most time on him, on Jesus. So just to bring us up to speed, Jesus is still in Jerusalem. He's still at the Feast of Booths, which is also called the Feast of, the, of Tabernacles. And remember that the Feast of Booths commemorated how God sustained Israel when they were in the wilderness. They were in the wilderness after he had freed them from, ex- from Egypt, the Exodus. The Feast of Booths was also a thanksgiving feast. So every year, Israel would give thanks to God for their final harvest. This feast is where Jesus has been in all of John chapter 7. Now also in all of John chapter 7, some people receive Jesus, other people question Jesus, still others oppose Jesus. But the common ground is everybody can't stop talking about Jesus. And as they talk about him, controversy surrounds him. People wonder who Jesus is. They wonder where he's come from. They wonder where he's going. And as they wonder this, Jesus has clarified. He is sent by God the Father, whom he knows uniquely. God the Father has given Jesus his teaching. He's given Jesus his mission. Jesus clarifies that he will return to God the Father. And he knows that the path to get there is through the cross. Now, previously in John 7, Jesus only speaks in reaction to questions and accusations from people. But right here in our section, it's a little bit different. Jesus speaks first. He speaks unprompted by the people. And what he's about to say must be very important because look again at verse 37. It tells us the manner in which Jesus speaks. It says he stands up and he cries out. This is unique because teachers like Jesus normally taught sitting down. Jesus must have a big announcement. He must have something important to say. And look again at verse 37. It also tells us the occasion upon which Jesus speaks. It says he speaks on the last day of the feast, what's called the great day. Now, the Feast of Booths, like most of the other feasts in the Jewish calendar, lasted for a week. And by Jesus' time, new traditions developed to celebrate the Feast of Booths. These new traditions included a water pouring ceremony and a lamp lighting ceremony. This water pouring ceremony is likely the background that lies behind what Jesus is about to say. And I think it's really helpful for us to be able to step into this background in order to feel the weight of what Jesus says. I'm helped here by theologian Don Carson. He explains the background. On the seven days of the feast, a golden flagon was filled with water from the pool of Siloam and was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. So this container of water carried by the priest to the temple. Now, as that procession approached the temple, three blasts from the shofar, the shofar was a trumpet connected with joyful occasions, three blasts of that trumpet were sounded as the water reached the temple. Now, while the pilgrims watched, 
the priest processed around the altar with the water and the temple choir sang. They sang the halal, which is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And when the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim shook a palm branch in his right hand while his left hand raised a piece of citrus fruit, a sign of the ingathered harvest. And they all cried out three times, give thanks to the Lord. Here's the background of this feast, the day upon which Jesus spoke. Now, what's for particular interest for us is the water in this feast. What's the deal with the water? Why make an emphasis on water? Remember, the Feast of Booths commemorated God sustaining Israel when they were in the wilderness. And how did God sustain his people in the wilderness? He gave them water. Exodus 17, verse 6. It tells us how God gave them water. God instructed Moses when they came to Mount Sinai. He told Moses, strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people shall drink. Remember also that the Feast of Booths commemorated the final harvest of the year. So the only way you can get food, the only way you can get harvest is if there's rain, is if there's water. So every year at the Feast of Booths, God showed his same faithfulness to provide for them as he provided for their ancestors in the wilderness. He gave them water. It's this rich background that provides the occasion into which Jesus speaks. But what does Jesus actually say? Well, let's look again at verse 37. He begins with a qualification. Does he say, if anyone is thirsty... This is who he's talking to. This is who he wants to respond. Thirsty people. Now, if you know the Gospel of John by now, you know that Jesus isn't talking about physical thirst. He's talking about a spiritual one. And if we want to piece together what is spiritual thirst, well, maybe we can consider Jesus's original audience. Who are the people who heard this invitation? How would they have been spiritually thirsty? Well, I think you need to think no more than their leaders. The leaders of the people who heard Jesus here, they left the people malnourished. In other places, Jesus calls the people like sheep without a shepherd. In other places, like Matthew 15, Jesus calls the leaders blind guides, leading blind people. In Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus says that the leaders tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The leaders left the people thirsty. Leaders like the chief priests and the Pharisees, they expected the people to adhere to all of God's 613 commandments from his law. And then on top of that, they expected people to adhere to all the extra stuff they put around God's law. And so no wonder these people felt a heavy weight and they discovered we cannot bear it. We are insufficient. There is a need and we can't meet it. We are weighed down and thirsty. Those are the people Jesus is talking to. If we want to know what spiritual thirst is, I think we can find it in other places in the Bible, specifically in a couple places from the book of Acts. We read about one earlier from Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost after Jesus died, was buried, and rose again and ascended to heaven. Peter speaks to the crowd in Jerusalem and he speaks to thirsty people. 
He tells them, this Jesus whom you have crucified, God has raised up declaring him Lord. And in Acts 2.37, how do the people respond to this? They ask Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Because they were cut to the core and they cried out, brothers, what shall we do? Right there, there is an instance of spiritual thirst. If anyone is thirsty, what does it mean to be thirsty? I think another example could help us. From Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi. So God sends an earthquake to free them. And the prison guard keeping watch, he's ready to take his own life because all these prisoners are about to escape. But the apostle Paul stops him. And as soon as he stops in the prison guard in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, he cries out, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That right there is spiritual thirst. The old British pastor, J.C. Ryle, summarizes that to be spiritually thirsty is to have an anxiety of soul. It's to have a conviction of sin. It's to have a desire of pardon. It's to long after peace of conscience. To be spiritually thirsty is when a man feels his sins and wants forgiveness, is when a man is deeply sensible of his soul's need and earnestly desires help and relief. Only then is someone in the state of mind in which Jesus has in view when he says, if anyone thirsts. My friend, are you thirsty in this way? If you're not, I wonder if you're not thirsty because you mask your thirst with substitutes and distractions. Doctors in the room might have to correct me on this, but I've heard that when you crave your favorite salty snack, for me, it's freshly popped popcorn. I could eat that stuff for an hour and not notice. (laughs) I've heard that when you crave your favorite salty snack, it's often not because you need the salt, but that you're actually thirsty. You confuse the cravings. You satisfy the thirst with the wrong thing. And that works for a while, but after a while, you're even more thirsty than you were before. Friend, I wonder if you're doing that in real life, if you're not thirsty. Would you be honest? Isn't your soul thirsty? Don't you long for a pardon that you can't provide? Don't you long for a life that you can't sustain? Don't you long for a peace that you can't secure? The good news, friend, is that the only qualification that Jesus gives is thirst. Notice Jesus doesn't say, if anyone thirsts and has lived a decent life, because he knows none of us has. All you need is to feel your need. Because the only ones who drink are those who know they're empty. So what does Jesus say? He begins with a qualification. If anyone thirsts, he continues with an instruction. If anyone is thirsty, what does he say? Let him come to me. And what does it mean to come to Jesus? Jesus explains it right away. Verse 38, whoever believes in me. So this is what Jesus is doing. If anyone is thirsty, he offers himself as the remedy. And the apostles did the same thing. Circle back to the examples we referred to. Peter knew that Jesus alone is a remedy to our thirst. Acts chapter two, what does he tell the thirsty people? He says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 
The Apostle Paul knew that Jesus is the only remedy to our thirst. What did he tell the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 who cried out for salvation? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So right here in John chapter 7, Jesus doesn't present himself as one option on the menu of thirst quenchers. He presents himself as the only option. So friend, that tells you that no man-made religion, no self-care, no life tips, no entertainment, no relationship, no possession, none of that will save you, none of that will secure you, none of that will ultimately satisfy you. You and I are thirsty. We are told to go to Jesus and drink. So have you done that? Another way to ask it, do you believe in Jesus? Christians, I wonder why we just don't ask that to people straight up. (laughs) Doesn't it all boil down to that? I wonder why we beat around the bush so much. From here in John 7, to believe in Jesus means that you stop seeking to quench your thirsty heart with what won't quench it. And you start quenching your thirst with Jesus and you come to him. To believe in Jesus means to trust in Jesus. To believe in Jesus means to listen to Jesus. To believe in Jesus means to love Jesus. To believe in Jesus means to follow Jesus. So what does Jesus say in verses 37 to 39? He begins with a qualification. If anyone thirsts, he continues with an instruction. Let him come to me. He closes with a promise. He says those who believe in him will have rivers of living water flow from them. He says this is a promise of scripture that he fulfills. Now, there are a couple of promises that Jesus could have in mind, including Isaiah 58, verse 11, which says this, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. In verse 39, John narrates for us and explains that Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit who would not indwell believers in Jesus until after Jesus was glorified. Now, again, I think the background that we talked about just a few minutes ago helps us here, helps us know what Jesus is saying. Remember that during the Feast of Booths, people gave thanks to God for providing water. And what did water allow them to do? Well, in the wilderness, water allowed them to survive. And here in John 7, we're told that the Holy Spirit is like water. So that must mean the Holy Spirit is how believers in Jesus survive on our wilderness journey to the promised land of heaven. The Holy Spirit is our water that allows us to survive. But there's more than this. What else did they commemorate during the Feast of Booths? It was the harvest. They didn't just survive in the wilderness. They were able to thrive in the wilderness. They were fruitful So on our wilderness journey, we have water. We have the spirit who allows us not just to survive, but to thrive and be fruitful. So that in the middle of harsh conditions, you and I, believer in Jesus, can be fruitful. We can have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Because of the Holy Spirit, you can have all those things even, the, even in the worst of wilderness conditions. But I think it gets even better than this. So right, remember the feast. And how did God originally provide the water for his people in the wilderness? 
Exodus 17, it was when Moses struck the rock. That's when God provided the water. Now, later on in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, the apostle Paul picks up on this. And he said that that rock was a preview of Christ. So John talks about in chapter seven, that the moment of Jesus's glorification, that is the time when Jesus was struck dead on the cross. So here's what this means. That the new life you and I don't deserve can be given to us only when Jesus was struck with the death that you and I deserved. That's when, that's how we get the Holy Spirit, by the rock being struck. And the rock was Christ. A believer in Jesus, maybe you are surprised by this, but your Savior is always, is always better than you think that he is. Now, for a lot of us, I think Jesus is good news and relevant for our past. But maybe the temptation can set in even subtly that Jesus is no longer good news for our present. If we compare ourselves to the Israelites, maybe you and I can function like Jesus has delivered us from Egypt, but he has sort of, he has sort of left us to ourselves in the wilderness. But you see, on the cross, Jesus didn't just purchase our deliverance. Jesus purchased our perseverance. He purchased our transformation. He purchased everything you and I need for life and godliness. And this includes the promised Holy Spirit. And do you know the main way that the Holy Spirit causes us to survive and thrive in the wilderness? What is the Holy Spirit's main ministry? Jesus will talk about it in John 14 and 16. Paul will talk about it in Romans 8. The main thing that the Holy Spirit does is that he uses God's word to remind us of Jesus and to assure us of who we are because of Jesus. The Holy Spirit knows that you and I are still thirsty. So the Holy Spirit's ministry is to keep us coming to Jesus. So here it is. This is the longest look. This is Jesus, the one who fulfills God's promise to satisfy our thirst, to pardon the guilt that we have, to give life that we couldn't give ourselves, to reclaim the peace with God that we have lost. All we need is to feel our need and come to him. But as we continue on in the next two paragraphs, not everybody comes to Jesus. So verses 40 to 44, we see how the people respond to him. In fact, look at how verse 40 begins. It says, when the people heard these words, so all the opinions that are to follow are in response to Jesus's words in verses 37 to 39. And John summarizes for us in verse 43 that there is division among the people about Jesus. I thought of it like this. If you put 10 people from Parma in a room and you ask them, where's the best place to get a pierogi? I bet you would get 10 different answers from people in Parma. It's sort of like this here, but the subject is way more important. There is division among the people about Jesus. Now, starting off, some people say that Jesus really is the prophet, the prophet. This figure has popped up a few times in John. It comes from Deuteronomy 18. God's promise to Moses that there, he would rise up a prophet after Moses who would be greater than him. So maybe these people here in John 7 listen to Jesus talk and they connect the dots between Jesus giving water and Moses giving water from the rock. Other people say, we continue going, verses 40 to 44, that Jesus is the Christ. 
Christ, again, is the Greek word for Messiah, meaning anointed one, or even God's anointed king. We're not told what the people mean by this when, he say, when they say he is the Christ. And we do know just a couple of chapters earlier, after Jesus fed the 5,000, there was a group of people who wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. They misunderstood the type of king that he is. Don't know what they mean when they say this is the Christ. But just these two first opinions. Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the Christ. Both of these groups are right. I think it's worth to clarify for a moment. It, it reminds me of one of my favorite childhood movies, The Sandlot. The Sandlot is a, is a movie about a group of boys who play baseball on a sandlot. Go figure. Uh, and they, it, the plot of the story is that they lose a baseball signed by Babe Ruth. Now, the kid who lost the baseball has no idea who Babe Ruth is. He doesn't know why it's a big deal to lose this ball. And when the other boys discover that they don't know who, that he doesn't know who Babe Ruth is, they are flabbergasted. They can't believe it. They list off all the Babe's nicknames, the Sultan of Swat, the King of Crash, the Colossus of Clout, the Great Bambino. And so this kid who lost the ball, he finally sees the lights and he says, you mean that's all the same guy? The Old Testament promised a future figure who would be the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. In Jesus, we find all those offices in one person. It's all the same guy. He is the prophet who doesn't just bring a word from God. He is the word of God in the flesh. He is the uniquely qualified priest who doesn't need to make atonement for his sin because he doesn't have any and he can represent us to God. He is the ultimate king who can perfectly represent what God is like to us because he is equal with God himself. He is the prophet, the priest, the king. And yet when you look at the end of verse 41, there are people who still don't recognize this. And again, like we saw last week, they question Jesus's origins. All they know about Jesus is that he grew up in Nazareth and mainly lives in a city called Capernaum. And both these towns are in the region of Galilee. And Galilee is like the boonies of Israel. And unlike the people back in John 7, verse 27, the people here know their Bibles well. They know that God promised to David that a descendant would reign on his throne forever. They know that through the prophet Micah, God promised for this king to be born in Bethlehem. But you see, although God promised David over and over again and promised in his word over and over again that he would raise up a king in the line of David, as the Bible continues, what keeps happening is that all the kings after David keep failing over and over again. And it gets to the point where, where we come to a king called Zedekiah, and Zedekiah is taken captive by this empire called Babylon. And the Babylonian king knows about this promise. He knows that their God has promised for a king to reign on David's throne forever. And so you know what the Babylonian king does. He rounds up all of Zedekiah's sons and puts Zedekiah in front of them. In front of them. And, the, and the Babylonian king kills all of Zedekiah's sons. And then the Babylonian king gouges out Zedekiah's eyes. So it's like the last thing that Zedekiah saw 
was the promise of God failing. This is the dark background. Surely these people in John 7 knew about. And if only these people knew the truth, that God did keep his promise, that he did preserve the line of David, and that there was a king born in Bethlehem. So let's step back for a moment, look at the big picture of verses 40 to 44. Look at these different groups of people and reflect. Maybe for you here, if if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't trust in him, maybe for us who know people like that, I want you to think about the group of people described in verses 41 and 42, ones we were just talking about. What's true about these people? What's true is that they know their Bibles actually pretty well. But they offer a warning to us. They warn us that if your knowledge of the Bible doesn't lead you to faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, then you don't really know the Bible. And your knowledge of the Bible that you have is skewed and insufficient. These people here in verse 41 and 42, they think they have all the information that they need. But it turns out that they don't. And most people dismiss Jesus too quickly because they think they know everything about him already. Kind of like milk, right? The people here didn't slow down and consider that, you know, there might be something that we're missing. I would encourage you today, don't make that same mistake. Maybe you grew up hearing Bible stories. Maybe you grew up hearing John 3, 16. And maybe you've watched a lot of people who claim to believe in Jesus live an awful life. And maybe then you've concluded, I know everything that there is to know about Jesus. My friend, if that's you, I would encourage you, don't think that. Don't make the same mistake and dismiss Jesus too quickly. Now, for believers in Jesus, we take a step back, look at all of verses 40 to 44. I think this array of responses can help us. All these different responses can reorient our expectations. They remind us, Jesus is divisive, and he knows it. Matthew 10, 34 to 39, Jesus tells his followers that even their own family members will stand against them because they stand for him. So brother and sister in Christ, when you feel alone and opposed, whether it be at work, in your family, in your own home, when you feel alone and opposed because of your faith in Christ, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Rest assured that when you feel alone and opposed, your Savior stands in solidarity with you. He knows what it's like to to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to be slandered. He knows what it's like to be alone. He knows what it's like to be mistreated. And because he endured that for you, you can be secure when you endure the same things. So for believers in Jesus, let's take a step back and look at the big picture, verses 40 to 44. You know what so many of these people have in common? They long and wait for a Messiah. You know, I would submit to you that people today aren't that different. Why are we obsessed with celebrities and politicians and athletes and even comic book superheroes? Because all of us deep down are like Bonnie Tyler. Maybe you know the song. We are holding out for a hero. And either we make ourselves the hero or we long for it in the, long, in the wrong place. 
But either way, we inevitably are let down. And Jesus is the only one who fits the bill of the hero we actually need, the one who was promised and is now here, the prophet, the priest, the king, the one who lived the perfect life we didn't live, died the death we deserve in our place, and, and rose again, defeating sin and death, and is now ascended to heaven with all authority in heaven on earth that he has. He will not let us down. But so now we come briefly to our last set of characters described in verses 45 to 52 the authorities. This paragraph describes three different authority figures, the officers, the chief priests and the Pharisees, and Nicodemus. We'll see see things about each one of them. So we last saw the officers way back in John 7, verse 32. There, the chief priests team up with their rivals, the Pharisees, and they send these officers to arrest Jesus. Now, these officers weren't just normal cops. They were the temple guard. They aren't heartless henchmen who will do dirty work if the price is right. The temple guard would have been made up of Levites. This is the tribe of Israel that the priests came from. So these guys would have been religiously trained. They aren't mindless muscle. And now remember too from last week that the chief priests and the Pharisees are very careful. They don't want to lose the crowd's approval. So it's likely that they told these officers, hey, try to arrest Jesus and not cause a big stir or a big fuss from the people. Now, when the officers come back to give their report to the chief priests and the Pharisees, verse 46, look at what they don't say. What they don't say is that, you know, we never had a good moment to arrest the guy. They don't tell them, Jesus got away as soon as we tried to arrest him. They don't tell him, you know, the people were just too hostile. There's no way we could have arrested Jesus. You know, one of those excuses might have appeased the authorities. What do they say? Verse 46, they just can't seem to help it. They just blurt out. No one ever spoke like this man. So just think about this. How great must Jesus be if even those who are biased against him are impressed with him? It's the same true today, even today. People who are biased against Jesus can't help but acknowledge that Jesus is the most influential figure of history from the last 2,000 years. And what is it about Jesus that impresses these officers? It's his words. You could do this now, still read Jesus speaking in the Bible. And as one pastor puts it, you'll read of one who uniquely combines power and simplicity, who uniquely combines power courage and wisdom who uniquely combines faithfulness and tenderness you'll read of one who speaks of truths that children can swim in and and elephants can wade no one ever spoke like him now to use this word twice in a sermon the pharisees are flabbergasted at the officers let's look at them for a minute They think that Jesus has deceived these officers just like he deceived the rest of the crowds. And the Pharisees retort, it carries a huge amount of arrogance. Look at verse 48. What do they ask? They ask, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. I wonder, do you guys know what subtext is? Kind of. It's a way to explain passive-aggressive comments. It's a statement that's underneath the statement. It's the thing you're really wanting to say but don't actually say. 
There is subtext to what the Pharisees say in verse 48. The subtext, the statement behind their statement. So when they ask, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? You know what the subtext is? These people aren't smart enough to decide on their own. That's why we decide for them. That's the subtext. You know, there are churches who treat people like that still. The leaders are the final authority, not God's word. I've heard it put like this. Pastors aren't meant to stand between you and God. Pastors exist to make sure nothing else stands between you and God. Pastors are not priests. Pastors are not mediators. Pastors are merely servants of God to help you grow closer to him. The Pharisees didn't understand that. I think there's more subtext to what they say. When the Pharisees talk about how these people are being deceived and they don't know the law, there's subtext to that. What they're really saying is that the only people who believe in this Jesus guy are the ignorant common folk. The only people who believe in this Jesus guy are the people who need a crutch to get them through their pathetic lives. That's the subtext. And you hear people who think they're smart who say the same thing, don't you? That Jesus is a crutch for simple people who don't know better. You know, the truth is, is that everybody has a crutch. It's just a matter of whether it'll hold your weight. For the Pharisees, their crutch was their wisdom and their learning. And we'll soon see that it it, it collapses under their weight. The Pharisees aren't as wise as they hold themselves up to be. That's where this other character shows up, Nicodemus. Last time we saw Nicodemus, he was Nick at night back in chapter three. He walked away confused from his encounter with Jesus. And just as the Pharisees say that people don't know the law, just as they say that, well, Nicodemus chimes in and says, well, actually, guys, you don't know the law because you want to arrest Jesus without due process. And so again, look at the Pharisees' response, their response to Nicodemus in verse 52. I think this shows that the Pharisees' objections to Jesus aren't intellectual. Their objections are personal. Look at, the, look at verse 52. They respond like you respond when you're frustrated and beaten in an argument. What do you do? You get personal. You start name-calling. And your reasoning gets sloppy. That's what they do here. And I think, friends, this is actually the real heart of those who deny God and deny Christ. The denial isn't intellectual. It's personal. And sometimes you'll hear it from people in a moment of honesty. Because, friends, it's normally not an argument that gets people to become atheists. It's a moment in their lives that does. The true heart of atheism is not, there is no God. The true heart of atheism is, there is no God, and I hate him. Romans 1 says that what can be known about God is plain, but people suppress this truth and exchange the truth to worship something else. So if you encounter people who respond like the Pharisees do in verse 52, people whose objections appear to be intellectual, but you can sense are actually personal. My friend, maybe the best way to approach somebody like that might not be to talk first about the existence of God. The best way to approach somebody like that might be to talk first about the goodness of God. The goodness of God displayed ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is no deceiver. 
And we're not told much, but it seems like Nicodemus can sense that as well. Jesus has called the weary and the thirsty to come to him. And Jesus has said previously, even to Nicodemus, that the only people who come to him are those whom the Father draws and the Spirit makes alive. But I think Nicodemus is really encouraging. I think Nicodemus shows us that the Holy Spirit often works on hearts gradually. Because the next time we see Nicodemus show up is in John chapter 19. And there Nicodemus gives a a generous amount of money to anoint Jesus's body and help Joseph of Arimathea bury him. This would have been an act in defiance to the rest of his fellow Pharisees. So I think this tells us that the spirit leads to one Jesus, but he gets people there in different ways and at different speeds. So maybe somebody like Nicodemus, friend, can give you patience, perseverance, and hope for the people in your life to whom you have spoken about Jesus, but they don't thirst for him. The spirit often works gradually. Now for those who are thirsty and have come to Jesus, I wanna close with this. Where is our Lord leading us? I invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter seven, verses 14 to 17. If you're looking at the Bibles provided, it's on page 1032. Where is Jesus leading us? I read this this past week and I couldn't help but notice how many connections there are to this, to this moment in John 7 here. Revelation 7, 14 to 17. We'll come at the end of 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, They are before the throne of God. So what that means, the blood of the lamb qualifies us to stand before God's throne. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. That word shelter is the same word used for booth or tabernacle. So what this is saying is that God's presence will be our dwelling place. All right, so he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Praise be to God, let's pray. Oh, Spirit of God, For those here who are thirsty and have not come to Jesus, would you lead them to Jesus? For Christ's people, we are still thirsty and we cannot quench our thirst with ourselves. Lead us to Jesus again. In his name we pray, amen.